This is KXSF 102.5 FM, streaming worldwide at www.kxsf.fm. And you're tuned in to Spark with Kelly Marlowe. Informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. Today I'm talking with Banny Bunting, an author and curriculum facilitator on mindfulness. We will be talking about the courage to look within as she shares her journey from being a national tennis champion to FBI agent before becoming a mindfulness facilitator. Thank you for joining me on Spark today, Banny. Thank you for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. Let's start with your journey as a national champion in tennis. What was this like for you? It was a lot. It was all I really knew growing up. I um, I started playing tennis when I was nine years old. And then by age 11, I was actually playing the national circuit and traveling the country. I was missing holidays. I'd miss Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter to go play these tournaments. So I was pretty driven from a young age. It was a wonderful experience, but there was also downsides to it and definitely um, a growing and learning experience to bring me to who I am today. You had talked about the focus on being exceptional before the show when you were on this journey and what that was like for you. Can you talk about that? Yeah, from from this culture and this conditioning and just my upbringing, I was led to believe or I lived from the assumption or my understanding was that my my happiness, my well-being, my self-worth really was a function of my winning, of my um, achieving, you know, the trophies or the titles or the accolades. And so it was a constant, just my expectation that I always had to do better. And so I carried that mentality well into adulthood throughout my tennis career and then into some careers as an adult. Came from a highly competitive sports family. My brother played college basketball and my father played college basketball and football. And my mom was involved in sports as much as she could as being a woman back in that time. So taught to be the first one to practice and to be the last one to leave and that you, you earn who you are and your, your self-worth by how hard you work. And that's how I operated it. And, and it served me well. I mean, I definitely achieved a lot and had a pretty full resume having been nationally ranked since I was 11, you know, having a number next to my name for, I think, a solid 12 years and knowing what that number was each and every day of my life at that time. (laughs) I don't know if that's healthy. In one sense, I was able to achieve a lot on a resume, but my inner world didn't always match my outer world. Inside, there was a lot of stress and tension. And at that age, I didn't realize how much pressure I was putting on myself to succeed. I remember being in matches being in Florida, uh, cross country, I grew up in Arizona, and being in a, a match and thinking, well, what if I lose this match? Like my internal dialogue during the match, what are people going to think about me? You know, what are, what are my parents going to say or my coach? And, you know, what's going to happen to my ranking? And people aren't going to like me as much. And, you know, the whole dialogue going on. And I have to, I mean, I have to say, my parents did not put pressure on me to, I mean, they were supporting me, but it was just my own drive to be seen and to be heard, to be accepted. It sounds like there's a lot of stress when you're relating yourself to a rank number and yeah. judging by yourself as to whether you're winning or losing by that rank number each time yeah. you're competing. Absolutely. It was always a measurement. It was always a measuring stick. There was always 
someone winning, which means, you know, you're losing. It was a zero-sum game. And and that was how I saw the world. That, that was my perspective from, from the conditioning of it. Did you feel like you were in your head all the time? <laughs> Looking back, yeah, for sure. I was in my head. I was creating dialogues. There's Teach Mindfulness now, and one big phrase that I use is, like, we get caught in the what-if mind versus the what-is mind. And I was in that what-if a lot. What if I win? What if I lose? What if I don't qualify today? Then I'm not going to be at nationals next year. And then what's going to happen to my ranking? And then I'm never going to get the college scholarship. And then, you know, I mean, it just, it could go on and on. You jump on that train and you never know when you're going to get off of it. It's basically self-judgment and self being self-critical. Just based on your rec number, your particular competition, whether you did well, you didn't, and you're probably always assessing what you could have done better. Under the mindset that you have to just constantly be on yourself, ride yourself in order to get better. And that was for a long time. Very much so. Well into adulthood, into a number of different careers, into uh, the other <laughs> big <laughs> defining moment for me. Of, of, yeah. of becoming an FBI agent. Correct. <laughs> exactly. That was, um, that was a function of just not knowing really what to do in life. Growing up, I just, there was always that level of uneasiness and unsatisfactoriness because you're always looking outside of yourself for your happiness, right? You're externalizing your happiness. And it's like, okay, well, if I do this, then I'll be happy. If I win this trophy, then I'll be happy. If I earn that national title, then I'll be happy. If I earn All-American, both academically and athletically, then I'll be happy. And I only later in life, in my 40s, as I was reflecting back, is like, well, what I thought was my happiness, what would bring me happiness really, you know, it really didn't change anything. Once I did win that tournament or established that ranking or whatever it was, it's, you know, a day or two later, I was still the same person I was before that. And I wasn't always comfortable in my own skin. I wasn't always comfortable with who I was. And, and so the FBI was a function of that. I was still looking outward. You know, it sounded really, really cool. <laughs> so I had been exposed to it during a college internship with a congressman. And so then I applied, and it took a full two and a half years to get in. But I got in, and um, but I went into it really without knowing what I was getting into. And it was quite eye-opening for me. But again, it was something that, oh, I should do this because it's going to look good. It's another accomplishment. So going back to that external focus of accolades and affirmations through ranking numbers and awards. So it Mm -hmm. sounds like you get the award, you're happy for that moment. Then it's like you have to keep focusing on chasing the next moment of that next recognition. Absolutely. How am I going to keep this going? Fall off, then I'm a failure. You're never satisfied in the present moment. (laughs) One of the learnings I did through mindfulness was this Philip Moffat, this teacher that I admire, he talks about goals and intentions and like these goals of that we're trying to achieve. They're like the, the top of the mountain that we're trying to summit. Right. And so I always thought magically, like my goal was to become an all American. Well, once I do that, then I'm going to be happy at the top of my mountain. But really nothing had changed. It's not something magical at the top of the mountain where the real change happens, at least for, from my own experience has been, how am I being in the moment? How am I taking each step up that mountain? That's what really, really matters. I mean, we've all heard, right, life is in the journey, not the destination. But truly, like, if I want to shift 
my perspective, my experience. It really depends on, like, how am I in each moment? How am I taking that step up the mountain? Because nothing changed once I got to the top. I was still taking the steps in the same way, looking in the wrong place for my happiness and my satisfaction. So what you're saying is that when you got to that present moment and you won, you would now focus on what the next win would look like. But now you have shifted where you look at where you are presently and how does that look? It is. It's, it's being present and it's looking, shifting where to look for happiness. And I, from this practice, have learned that my happiness, my well-being is really an inside job. My willingness to turn towards myself and to look at my habits, my habits of thought, my patterns, how I perceive things, my preferences, and and noticing like, well, is this a helpful way of being? Is this a skillful way of being? Because prior to the practice, like you said, I would just always had that kind of tension of leaning forward into some future moment. Well, I got to uh, do this. I've got to achieve this. I've got to accomplish this. I've got to work harder. And it's a gotta, gotta, should, should, should kind of mentality. And in that is just, it's automatic tension in our bodies, tension in our lives. There's an underlying level of uneasiness and stress that is just perpetually there. That takes a for 40 years. It took a turn on you for 40 years. But could you do both? Could you be exceptional and still feel happy in a different way? Absolutely. I truly believe that. And that's what's inspired me to work with children. Because I think how I was relating to my moments could have been different. And so mindfulness isn't this, I think sometimes we think of it, this magical fix, this practice that's going to fix everything. We're not going to have difficulties. We are certainly going to have difficulties. We are certainly going to have challenges, right? We're all facing that right now in so many different flavors in this cultural and historic moment that we find ourselves in. But how we relate to it is everything. And so mindfulness has just taught me how to relate to things on a different way, with more presence, with more perspective, with a little more clarity. And so I think that mindfulness can actually support you in actually being excellent in a more skillful way, in a more present way. Um, I mean, like, just look at one of the assumptions I held growing up and well, and I still hold this patterning, is like, well, I have to be hard on myself in order to learn, right? If I don't get down on myself, I'm never going to get better. And what they're finding, which is really cool with the practice and the science of it now, being able to map the brain and see what's actually happening in the brain. And one of the practices of mindfulness is, is the you know, practices of the heart of compassion. And we all think of compassion, at least I did. Like when I hear the word compassion, like, oh, that's soft, right? That's for the weak, right? If you can't be strong, you can't be courageous, well, then be kind. <laughs> but what they're finding is that when we are compassionate with ourselves, when we're doing an activity, learning a skill, a trait, by being compassionate when we mess up, when we make mistakes, when we have setbacks, when we have challenges, that compassion actually increases our resiliency. And we are actually able to stay with the task for longer. We're able to stay engaged. And we're going to actually learn from our experience rather than berating and judging ourselves. And we'll actually get better. This just came to me that probably your audience, the Golden State Warriors, for a few years, had quite a lot of success. Steve Kerr. And Steve Kerr's message, he always had four things. And two of them, 
I, I think it was competitiveness, mindfulness, compassion, and joy. Those were his four fundamental themes and teachings for his teams and his players. And this idea of compassion, like compassion for ourselves and compassion for each other, that we're giving each other the benefit of that, that we are doing the best we can. And that's going to promote growth and, and well-being and improvement rather than getting down on each other. If you had to become a national tennis champion over again, what would you do differently? I think I would still work just as hard, but I might have a little more clarity or perspective on what is happiness? What is what what is success? I mean, I remember going into bathrooms before, like, you know, I had to go into a match at nine o'clock and like at eight thirty I like I could barely move or sometimes like, okay, find your breath. <laughs> the challenges of competition and and trying to achieve high standards is but how we relate to it, how we connect to it, how we come into it with our perspective could have shifted for me. And it wouldn't have had to have been so life and death. And looking back now, it's like I was so much more than that. I was so much more than that to my family, to my friends, to my loved ones. But I just saw myself as that tennis player and how I did on a given day, what my ranking was, what was my result. So what you're saying is that you felt that you were defined by your ranking number Ways now you see that you're much bigger than that. And that's what's shifted for you is that it's not about just that one identity. But if you look at the entire picture, there's a lot more meaning to your life than just the ranking number. But then you didn't see it. That is exactly right. As a young kid, it is hard to have perspective. But I think you can plant a seed. I think you can have these discussions with children. I think they get it. And so it's you know, really looking at how do you define happiness? How do you define success? How do you define yourself? Like, how do you see yourself? Getting more clear on that and just having discussions about that because mindfulness, one of the aspects of it is it allows us to see more clearly. It allows us to step back and to see the bigger picture. And I was just so caught up in the details when I was young. You had conveyed before the interview that if someone asked you the five qualities you like about yourself when you were playing tennis, you wouldn't be able to name them then. Can you name them now? Could you name those five qualities that define you now? I think I could. and But Kelly, I don't want to say that it was when I was playing tennis. It was like in my 30s and 40s. <laughs> so it was really later in life. It was one of my first yoga classes and the teacher had us like internally name the five things that we liked about ourselves. And in that moment, I had not done any inward reflection. I had not, I had been looking outward my whole life. And I, and the one thing that came to me was, oh, I'm a hard worker. I'm a hard worker. And that's all that I could think of. But now, yeah, I could, I could name, it was, it was funny that about two years after that, I was um, then at a intensive workshop weekend and we were coming together for the first time and the teachers asked us to name what is our gift to the world and I remember having a clear answer my my gift to the world was that I live with intention intention to lead with my heart with kindness compassion and equanimity was an intention I set five years ago and I wear to this day a bracelet to remind me of that and so in that moment I was like oh there's some reflection here like I went from not being able to name anything to being able to name this right off the bat. And that's just by the willingness to to turn towards myself and really understand, like, what does bring me happiness? As you pointed out, it took a while for you to get to this point. 
And yeah. you had similar experience when you were an FBI agent. Can you talk about the experience, what it's like to be an FBI agent, how you could see this applying to that experience now? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I was an FBI agent 20 years ago. And so when I went in, I was one of five females in a class of 60 at Quantico. So it was, it was a pretty male dominated world. And I, again, I didn't really know what I was getting into. Um, and pretty quickly right away, you know, day in and day out, you're dealing with difficulties. You're dealing with the dark side. You're dealing with, with kind of the shadow side of life. And it's really, really draining. It's really, really difficult. Um, especially if you don't know what you're going into. Um, and I can see how it takes a toll on law enforcement. I can see how they become jaded just by the what you're having to deal with day in and day out. And to be good in that profession, right, succeeding, how do you define success? You had to really put in the time and the effort to, to get these cases solved and to work these cases and to work your informants and, and all those things. But it, it really takes a toll on you mentally, emotionally, and physically. And so... I can understand why more and more law enforcement entities are bringing in the practice of mindfulness and presence to allow them to find ways to help support them and to bring in resiliency because it is a tough job. You are dealing with the shadow side, the dark side, and it takes a toll on your perspective. And I, and I experienced that. I think half of my class that went into this job, we came together, we were then scattered to different field offices. But I, I would say easily half the people that I went into this job with within the first couple of years, if they were married, they were divorced because it's just it's just hard on on individuals. What you believe can make a difference is the practice of mindfulness in these high intensity type of situations where you're so focused on that one singular moment or goal. Absolutely. And you have to be able to take a step back and just say, okay, it's bigger than just this one moment or one goal that we're so focused on. Right. And and then law enforcement, when you're in a difficult situation, right, you're in your amygdala, you're in your fight, flight, or freeze response, you're in your survival skill. And what better time to be able to find your breath? Because science is showing that after a few cleansing breaths, you can put your brain back online, come back to your higher consciousness part of your brain where you're going to make better decisions by finding your breath, by being present, instead of getting just caught in that fight, fight, or freeze response where we do things, right, as normal citizens, right? We, How many of us have had the situation where we said something, done something, and later regretted it? Like, what was I thinking? Well, obviously, I wasn't because I was in my amygdala response, right? My um, sympathetic nervous system, and it just, I wasn't thinking clearly. And so for law enforcement, for military, for any of those, to have the wit to find their breath, to find that perspective and to make a more skillful choice rather than creating more harm, I think is invaluable. You had conveyed that you felt the lesson for you was to have the courage to look within. And that's something we need to be able to do. And for you, it was through mindfulness. Yeah, I was about to become a parent, or right as I was becoming a parent, I thought to myself, I thought, there's got to be doing, there's got to be a different way of doing life than how I'm doing it, right? That constant next thing, next thing, and how draining and how fatiguing, and like, there's got to be a simpler way. So 
So I was introduced to mindfulness and meditation and yoga, and I kind of took them all on wholeheartedly. And it it really shifted my perspective. I think probably the, I use this analogy when I'm teaching, but it's, I think it really speaks to this idea of the, the practice in terms of speed, right? Prior to the practice, I was going 60 miles an hour, right? I was doing, 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 striving, 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 sometimes even almost like redlining it, right? Because that's all I knew. Um, but the practice has really taught me how to slow down. And in my slowing down, right, I can see things more clearly. One of my favorite sayings is we slow down half as much, we notice twice as much. And so for me, in my slowing down, I started to notice my life again. And I started to notice what mattered most, what has hardened meaning, right, being present for my child, to slow down and to see that, that sparkle in their eye, right, to slow down and be present for a heartfelt conversation with a dear friend where I was really open and receptive versus being distracted about the next thing I was going to have to do. They say that presence is the greatest gift that we can give to another, and I truly, truly believe that. And it's also the greatest gift that we can give to ourselves. And so this idea of, of slowing down has really served me. It's not like I don't still get up to those 60 miles an hour, because I do. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. I'm a doer, a doer, a doer. But I notice when I'm up there more consciously, like I can feel it in my body. I'm like, okay, this is not resonating. Like I can feel my anxiety level. I can feel my um, resistance to my kids and, and being skillful in how I respond to them. Right. I can see what it's causing in my relationships at home when I'm caught up in that 60 miles an hour. It's like, okay, Danny, you gotta, you gotta slow it down here. A little bit. You gotta regroup a little bit. You gotta remember who you want to be. And so I love the analogy of, of speed, and, and being able to slow down to see things more clearly. One last thought on this, I oftentimes, and I'm sure a lot of people have seen this, but with children, I use the jar of water and glitter, like jar of water and sand, right? And we shake it up. And this is us going 60 miles an hour, sand or glitter swirling all around. You can't see anything. And that's how it feels internally in my mind, right? I get frustrated. I get angry. But then if I can take a moment to pause, right, I can feel my feet on the floor. I can get a little sense of groundedness. I can take a few cleansing breaths. Pretty soon that glitter starts to settle and the water becomes clear. And so there's that perspective, there's that clarity that wasn't available to me when I was going 60 miles an hour. Glitter, when it settles, it doesn't disappear. It's still there, right? My problems, my challenges. My difficulties are still there, but it's not taking over my entire view. I have a different perspective, even with those challenges being there. So the best way to practice mindfulness is to be completely present in the moment and to really be aware of your breath. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I use the breath as an anchor just from my focus in sports and my focus in yoga. But sometimes breath doesn't work for people. Um, there's what we're basically doing with mindfulness is you're anchoring your awareness on some object of attention so that the mind's not skipping forward or rewinding in the past, right? Worrying about the future, regretting the past. So you're anchoring your awareness on something that is here now. And it could be the tingling of the hands or the pleasantness or the relaxing of the shoulders. You're basically anchoring your awareness in some type of uh, object of attention because of the body or the breath, because the body and the breath are always present. It's only the mind that takes us someplace else. But one other anchor that I want to mention is the, um, the heart practices. 
And so there is this other type of meditation, just other than just the present moment. So with mindfulness, they say that there's two wings. It's often likened to a bird. A bird has these two wings in order to fly. Well, mindfulness needs these two pieces in order to be complete. And in the West, I think we put a lot of emphasis on the first wing, which is that awareness piece, right? Being in the present moment. And we do that by the breath or the body or whatever. But the second wing is just as equally important, and that is it's the wing of the heart. And so mindfulness is more than just this inner awareness. It also asks us for an appropriate response. And to me, (laughs) the appropriate response 10 times out of 10 is a response from the heart. Right? It's not always what I do. It's not always my inclination. (laughs) But a response from my heart of a benevolent quality has never gotten me into trouble. And so that's when we come into the second wing. And so there's practices of cultivating benevolence. And, and so there's these, you can use phrases as a way of studying your attention, right? May I be healthy? May I be happy? And lots of creativity after that. But the idea is, again, you're studying your mind on some sort of object of attention, whether it's body, breath, or even phrases or a mantra that works for you. You know, what is it that you need? So you're really shifting the focus from your head to your heart. Mm-hmm. And your heart is more likely to steer you in the right direction than your mind that's going 60 miles per hour. That's what I have found from personal experience. That's what I often like to say is that the, the first wing, right, the process is like, from, like what you said, moving out of our heads. So we're moving from thinking and into feeling. And that's like the first step. And in doing so, moving from the what if mind into the what is, like what is present in my body, that has allowed me to shift my perspective, to see more clearly, right? That sand has started to settle. And so it changed my perspective. It changed my outlook and my attitude. But what the second wing has done, right, the wing of the heart has changed how I move through the world. My sincere intention to lead with my heart with kindness, compassion, and equanimity. And again, I don't always do that, right? I forget, I get lost, I get overwhelmed by the speed and complexity of my life. But my sincere intention is to come back to that. That's who I want to be. That's how I want to take each step up that mountain. Just come back to your intentions, and then they'll help you to anchor. That's what I have found. And that, you know, we talked about anchors. I have found that intention is one of the most powerful anchors that you can have. How is it that you want to be? Who is it that you want to be? I think those are really important questions. Wrapping up, your top tips for people who are exhausted in their pursuit of being exceptional. To take some time to slow down. Slow down and and get outside and be in nature. And sometimes it seems so simple, but we sometimes don't always take simple (laughs) ideas seriously. Um, Taking your time to pause, the power of the pause. I really believe curiosity is a fundamental trait that can change our world and change ourselves. And just asking your question, like, who do you want to be? Right? What getting really clear, what brings you joy? Because I think sometimes we as humans get it wrong in where we're looking for our happiness. I did for 40 years. And how I define happiness has certainly changed through the years, and it continues to change. Right, That reflectiveness, that curiosity, like when you get older, what are you going to look back on and really value? And then giving yourself the opportunity to mess up and make mistakes. Forget we get lost, but we have the ability to begin again. I, actually, we get as many do-overs as we allow ourselves. And so that transformational process of, of beginning again, right? Learning from your experience. Because the more we pay attention, the more we learn and grow from our experience. 
And then from that, we're going to make better, wiser choices. And then once we make better, wiser choices, we're going to experience more happiness, more contentment, more peace, more joy. And so it's an onward leading cycle. Well, thank you for sharing your journey with us. And thank you for joining me on Spark today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Kelly.